This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ritparna Padkari, on New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Anita Lama. She is the author of the book, Ethnic Inequality in the Northeastern Indian Borderlands, Social Structures and Symbolic Violence, published by Rutledge in 2021. She received her doctorate in Global and Area Studies from Humboldt University of Berlin, Germany. Her research interests include social theory, globalization, and inequality. She lives with her octogenarian father and three dogs at her home in India. Anita, I welcome you to this conversation on new books in sociology. Thank you for your, uh, thank you very much, Ritupana. First of all, let me ask you uh, a little bit about your inspiration behind writing this book, if you could take our listeners through it. Um, yeah, thank you for your question. Uh, it basically comes down to three aspects. Uh, my life experience, relevance of Pierre Bourdieu's uh, theoretical framework to study the issue of legitimation, and the valuable guidance of my PhD supervisor. Um, this book is a research monograph based on my PhD thesis. So in that sense, the inspiration for choosing this topic for my doctoral research is grounded in my long-standing desire to understand the persisting issue of legitimacy in the Northeastern Indian borderlands. In particular, the initiating idea to this book originates in relation to the linguistic Nepalese of Darjeeling and Doers within the federal state of West Bengal in India. Um, In this regard, after further reading and exploratory fieldwork in 2015, I decided to research on the Limbu ethnic group, primarily for a deeper and broader understanding on the issue of legitimacy in the region. For example, Limbu share an overarching Nepali identity based on the ethnicization and administrative categorization in India, which would help me understand the issues of legitimacy among the linguistic Nepalis in Northeast India. At the same time, the Limbu ethnic identity is an older identity and therefore precedes identities and time period associated with the formation of nation states in this region of study. 
in this sense, it was possible to look deeper into this issue. This is a historically transformative process that is shared by several other smaller ethnic groups in this region, both within and beyond the Nepali ethnic identity. Therefore, case study on the Limbu ethnic group provided a lens for deeper and broader understanding on the issue of legitimacy in the northeastern Indian borderlands. It is also for this reason that Sikkim and Nepal have been included in this book. The other inspiration lies in my strong interest to apply Pierre Bourdieu's theoretical framework to study the symbolic dimensions of social inequality in this region. Um, I must say this was long overdue as I first aspired to do this back in 2011, immediately after completing my master's in social sciences from University of Freiburg in Germany, but the opportunity and my preparation to pursue doctoral studies could come together only towards the end of 2014. In particular, Pierre Bourdieu's concept of symbolic violence has been rather compelling and relevant as it is designed to study stratified social systems of hierarchy and domination through legitimation. The greatest inspiration of all has been my much respected PhD supervisor, Professor Boyke Rebein at Humboldt University, Berlin, for his innovative and in-depth contributions to inequality studies and for his consistent support, encouragement, and valuable guidance. The outcome has been the eventual publication of this book. Right. Very, very interesting, Anita. I was really intrigued reading your book. So my next question is that uh, I would also want to know uh, about the major theoretical contributions of the book. To my given understanding, this book is a pioneering work in terms of the application of Pierre Bourdieu's sociology to Northeast India. And with regard to the theoretical interpretation of ethnic inequality in Northeast India, this book is understood to be groundbreaking. Uh, in this book, I have addressed the question of why Limbu ethnic groups in Nepal and India are seen as secondary in structures of inequality. Um, using Pierre Bourdieu's concept of symbolic violence, I argue that the Limbu's ethnicization was associated with a devaluation of their cultural identity, which was first constructed and naturalized by the same process of ethnicization. Much of this is linked with the formation of nation states in this region, which made the Limbus into a dominated ethnic group in Sikkim, Darjeeling, and Nepal, and is grounded in the nation state discourse on development as the discursive successor to civilization. However, the explanatory statement for their subordinated position differs in each national context based on historical factors as discussed in the book. So uh, what are some of the methods that you have used in this book? Uh, I would also want to know about your field site and the people that you have studied. Do you think that your own social position in any way play any kind of role in this research? Okay. Um... Well, um, after several months of immersing myself in reading literature based on the initial idea of my research topic, I conducted my exploratory fieldwork in Delhi, Sikkim, Darjeeling and Doers. Here I interviewed local and regional experts who are key respondents such as 
academicians, politicians, and ethnic association representatives, and even businessmen from different ethnic backgrounds. There, this exploratory fieldwork does not find its way into the book in terms of results, though it played a crucial role in doing away with layers of narratives that presented a somewhat distorted view of reality, particularly in relation to the issue of legitimacy. In this sense, my first fieldwork, even though it did not produce concrete results in terms of visible outcomes in the book, was still very significant in guiding me to the core issue of legitimacy that I aim to study. Therefore, the empirical chapters based on fieldwork mainly relates to my second fieldwork conducted in Sikkim, Darjeeling, and Nepal. Secondly, my book consists of five empirical chapters, out of which three are historical in nature. The other two largely based on my fieldwork are anthropological chapters, mainly dealing with visible phenomena. So much of the methods applied are documentary with participant observation. I have also conducted semi-structured interviews, part of which have been mentioned and interpreted in these chapters. Meeting my respondents in formal and informal settings have also given me insights into their sociocultural milieu, many of which have been very helpful while integrating the uh, social reality. About the field, um, the focus has been in Sikkim because it is interesting in terms of configurations with pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial state structures. Also, it was feasible because I'm from India and I have lived in Sikkim for a few years and for several other reasons, such as the accessibility to published scholarly works on Sikkim. I also look into Nepal and Darjeeling for comparative analysis, um, for, uh, but for practical reasons, did not go deeper into history. Uh, the comparative analysis has enabled me to come up with a supposedly rare and highly appropriate line of argument, which highlights both the structural identity of all symbolic violence and the many differences between its actual manifestations. In doing so, it also explains that immigrant background is not the reason for the subordinate position within the state structures, or, or uh, let's say not the only reason, but rather a discursive statement to legitimize the subordinate position of the dominated within the state structures. Much of this has been elaborated in the book, uh, taking into account all three settings. Um, as for the respondents, they come from all walks of life, but largely people who have been influential in shaping their cultural milieu. There have been times when I have engaged in casual conversations with layperson limbus, like the limbu lady selling oranges and ginger, or with limbu girls speaking in the language in a shared taxi. Such conversations have been pleasant while also contributing one way or the other to the understanding of their cultural realm. Um, now to answer the second set of your question, uh, did my own social position play any role in this research? Um, I must say this is a very interesting question. Um, my answer would be yes and no, considering that social position refers to my ethnic background in a given society. Yes, in the beginning as an initiating idea, as I have briefly mentioned in the first uh, question on inspiration, I would like to believe no. Um, as the research progressed, uh, particularly as the research progressed, because after the exploratory fieldwork and extensive reading of literature, um, uh, no, things uh, 
changed. Uh, things started changing. I believe that this research, as it progressed and developed, is driven by the pursuit for knowledge to understand the larger and deeper truth to social reality. In this regard, um, self-inquiry as a researcher using Bourdieu's conceptualization of reflexivity has guided me. Without going into the details on the painful and difficult self-inquiry processes that I went through during my PhD process, I can only say that it was not easy to choose the case of Limbus in all three settings. My topic challenges the status quo of the dominant groups with whom I share religion by birth, again religion, language and culture through ethnicization, and then again, residing at a place by virtue of being born there, where my family has lived through several generations. So while you may have been um, driven personally uh, in the beginning, or rather your own social position influenced you, you gradually learn the skills to do your job as a researcher. And that also means to shed all biases and interpret the social reality as it is, rather than as it appeared to you. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, definitely. So uh, my next question is kind of related because you refer to the Northeast region of India in your book. And both of us know that it is a very diverse region with heterogeneity. So I wanted to know from you, how do you use the term Northeast India in your book? Thank you for bringing up that question. Yes, um, not, uh, in my book, Northeast India basically refers to a geographical area on the northeastern periphery when viewed from mainland India, which stands out because this area is connected to the mainland India by a rather narrow corridor, famously known as the Chicken Neck Corridor. This is a geographically strategic location for this very reason, but also because it is home to several different smaller and bigger ethnic groups whose history of civilization largely differs. In contemporary India, this is also an administrative term with federal states in it, including Sikkim, but excluding West Bengal. So in that sense, it is also based on topography, including uh, more of hilly areas than plains. These are the factors that I have in mind while using this term. Um, here, I would like to draw a distinction with Northeastern Indian borderlands, which is more encompassing as it would it could imply all or parts of Northeast India, while also including the borderlands between Nepal and India, mostly borderlands shared by Darjeeling and Sikkim with Nepal in this context. So uh, coming to another term that you use in your book, ethnic inequality, if you could explain what you mean when you talk about ethnic inequality. Okay, I'll try. Ethnic inequality uh, refers to the unequal integration of ethnic groups uh, within the state structures, mainly nation states, which is directly linked with the symbolic dimensions of power relations embedded within this unequal structural integration. Uh, the symbolic dimension of inequality can be further understood by looking at a particular configuration of the state, dominant group, and ethnicity. It can also be understood by looking at Bodhi's conceptualization of social structure with hierarchical groups within state structures, where the group with most symbolic capital usually has access to other forms of capitals conceptualized by Bodhi, such as the political capital. For example, the dominant groups in Sikkim, Nepal, and Darjeeling have symbolic capital based on the value attributed to their culture in relation to the dominated groups. 
the explanatory statement to legitimize the subordinate position of the dominated differs in each context based on historical factors, as I have mentioned before. Uh, for example, in India, the subordinate position of the Limbus has been legitimized as immigrant Nepalis in relation to the indigenous dominant groups. But is it an absolute truth that the dominant groups are indigenous to the region of study or whether Limbus are actually immigrant uh, Nepalese as portrayed? These are the questions dealt with in this book while mainly looking at the symbolic dimensions of inequality at its core. So in your book also argue that inequality on a symbolic level is actually one of the main dimensions of ethnic inequality. So would it be possible for you to explain this more? Yes, um, this is an argument that I have developed theoretically and empirically. Um, uh, theoretically, using Pierre Bourdieu's concept of symbolic violence, I argue that the ethnicization of the Limbus has been associated with the devaluation of the cultural identity, which was itself first constructed and naturalized by the same process of ethnicization. This is something that I have already mentioned in second question. Uh, this argument is demonstrated in the final chapter, an anthropological chapter largely based on fieldwork. In this chapter, I compare the configuration of Sikkim with those in Nepal and Darjeeling and explain that even though symbolic violence is structurally identical in all three settings with the subordination of Limbus as a constant, the configurations themselves differ significantly to the degree of attributing the Limbu with varying cultural characteristics, depending on the relation to the dominant groups. This chapter includes comparison of several symbolic dimensions into the discussion, with its core focus on type of worship, Namangim. Uh, While this type of worship is linked to Hinduism, it is still interpreted as backward in the frameworks of Nepal and Darjeeling, since it is associated with the Hinduization of animist peoples. In Sikkim, where the dominant group's religion is Buddhism, this kind of worship is considered foreign and inferior. So in all three settings, Limbus have been devalued based on their cultural characteristics, despite the ethnicization as a Hindu and a Nepali. And this directly translates into their subordinate position in the social structure with lack of symbolic capital which is also used to legitimize the unequal integration into the state structures and thus explains their lack of political capital as well. Uh, so, Anita, you talk about, you know, issues of immigration and identity as they are also central to many other states of Northeast India. How do you think that these issues impact the social structure in Sikkim amongst the Limbus that you have studied? Okay, thank you for your interesting question, Ritupanna. Um, issues of, yes, I agree with you, issues of immigration and identity are central to many states of Northeast India. And these interlinked issues can be well understood through cross-border or transnational studies that takes into account local configurations and historical factors. However, it is also important to consider that identity issues may involve migration as well and largely relates to the issue of legitimacy within state structures. And even though these issues of immigration and identity may have been created outside the existing state structures, 
by factors such as natural calamity, overpopulation, to name a few. At the receiving end, uh, such as the host state, the issues of immigration and um, identity, uh, the, uh, uh, the issues of immigration are largely shaped by the existing state structures through its facilitation and regulation as a haven of safety, opportunity, or better life for newcomers, for example. So if the state structures are designed to protect the material and symbolic capitals of the original and older inhabitants in relation to that of the newcomers, then many of these issues will eventually diminish, if not completely eradicated. However, as our state structures are designed along cultural lines and at the same time also pursuing the ideology of majority as vote banks, it is not uncommon to find misuse of power, both by the dominant and the dominated groups, to accommodate illegal immigrants based on common culture at the cost of dispossessing the original or older inhabitants of their lands and depriving them of their rights to live better lives within their state structures. Then we also have to take into account the economic capital and its huge capacity to bring changes both for the benefit and detriment of the inhabitants. Okay. Uh, so, yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes, Anita. Continue. Yes. Uh, as for the second part of your question uh, uh, on the impact uh, uh, of this on the limbus, I would like to mention again, uh, uh, again that this book refers to the concept of social structure, particularly in the binary opposing distinction of the dominant and the dominated groups, which essentially follows Pierre Bourdieu's conceptualization of social structure as a classification of society within the framework of state structures, mainly nation state based on the possession of socially valuable capital. Social structure is therefore linked to capital within the nation state and in this study, largely cultural and symbolic capital, which also gives access to other forms of capital, such as the social and political capital. In this book, I argue that the dominant groups in all three settings of Sikkim, Darjeeling and Nepal are in possession of symbolic capital, primarily based on the value attributed to their culture in relation to that of the dominated groups, which, are intergeneration, which has intergenerationally given them access to to other forms of capitals conceptualized by Bourdieu. So my answer, therefore, applying Pierre Bourdieu's conceptualization of social structure relates to symbolic capital, which gives access to other forms of capital. Yes, these issues of immigration and identity will impact the Limbus in Sikkim because these are the issues, these are their issues as well, based on their administrative categorization as Nepalese and now as scheduled tribe of Nepali origin, which essentially means inferior Hindu and an immigrant. Such a devaluation doesn't legitimize them as indigenous to Sikkim and therefore doesn't give them access to political capital, which is also equally important to maintain a dominant position in a given social structure within state structures. In relation to the dominant Bhutia Lepcha group, whose dominant position in the Sikkimese social structure is legitimized by their indigeneity, the Limbus occupy a subordinate position symbolically as Nepali immigrants. And this directly translates into the political field, shaping the trajectories within the structural frameworks. For example, 12 seats have been granted to BL group in the state legislative assembly, 
based on their indigeneity as STs or what they term it as ethnic Sikkimese nowadays, whereas no seats have been reserved for Limbus as STs of Nepali origin. In terms of symbolic violence, their ST status is a misrecognition that obscures the constructed nature of domination. It also indicates that they remain categorized as Nepali and that the ST status only creates a misperception among the Limbus as indigenous. This is quite evident as their ST status holds little value in safeguarding their interests, such as protection of their lands. Hence, their classification is also tokenistic. So they lack political capital because they lack symbolic capital in relation to the BL group and have no protection of their lands, which has a huge impact with capitalistic ventures making inroads to Limbu lands, which can be bought by both the indigenous groups and the new settlers. Symbolic recognition is inseparable from material interest, and the case of Limbus in Sikkim exemplifies that. Seemingly, the BL group does not want to share the resources with the Limbus because this means decreasing their share of resources, but also because this will destabilize their supremacy as Limbus are primarily ethnicized Nepalese. In relation to the dominated group, which includes categorized Nepalese and also plainsmen from India, the Limbus occupy a subordinate place in the social structure of Sikkim. This is evident with Limbus contesting from a general category seat in Legislative Assembly, despite the ST status which arguably serves the interests of the Nepali and the plainsmen as a general and as a majority. This is also evident with the Nepali group opposing the demands to be recognized as Limbus and as ST in the past. In the context of the Nepali group, they would be deprived of the resources the Limbus would be entitled to with a rise in the hierarchy of symbolic order, while also destabilizing their symbolic power as a majority. In this case, it becomes evident that culture, legitimacy, and differ differentiation are interlinked and play a crucial role in maintaining the symbolic order of inequality in Sikkim. To make it brief, Immigration and identity issues will create more hierarchies and struggle for legitimation, as symbolic capital is inherently linked with material interest within state structures, and each group wants to achieve that. In such a scenario, Limbu ethnic group, given the lack of legitimacy as indigenous in Sikkim, will have to compete even more in the social structure with the dominated groups to protect the material and symbolic interest even though it may appear as though they are fiercely competing with the dominant group. Right, right. As I was listening to you very intently, sort of, you know, uh, I lost track. So, uh, last question, Anita. What would be some of the challenges, or if any, that you faced while carrying out this very interesting research on the Limbus in Sikkim? Although I received great, uh, great support from the Limbus in Sikkim and Nepal while carrying out my research, I also faced some challenges starting, starting with dearth of literature on the subjugation of the Limbus and their history to the place. Um, not all the people I wanted to interview were available for the interview as it happens in this kind of research. For example, in Sikkim, I wanted to interview key persons associated with Akhil Sikkim Kirat Limbu Chumurung, the organization that publicly asserted that Limbus were not Nepalese. But the name of the association had changed since then, and concerned person politely declined to speak. I came across similar situation in Limbu associations in Darjeeling, where they politely, um, uh, sorry, to be, uh, sorry, it's not associations, it's 
just one association, where they politely opened their office for me, but disappeared thereafter, after giving me their files, only to interrupt me for tea and later to close the office. Um, then uh, the other challenges are um, more related to perceptions, uh, which is, uh, I think, very difficult to um, to say it in words because it's based on perception, perception of uh, a researcher as a Indian or as a Nepali or of Nepali ethnic background or of a Buddhist uh, religion or, you know, uh, it's based on perceptions coming from Germany. So these are some of the challenges that you can face uh, as a researcher based on your social position and how you are perceived when you come from a university abroad. So uh, thank you once again, Anita, for taking time out to do this. I know you have a very busy uh, life and also have to take care of your father and dogs. So I truly appreciate you taking time out to talk about such an underrated aspect of research in sociology, particularly on the limbus who, uh, you know, don't get that much attention in sociological research. So thank you once again for speaking to me for new books in sociology. Thank you, Risa. Uh, thank you, Ritupana, for having me.